Chapter 6 of The Radio Gunner by Alexander Forbes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Hunt During June and July, Evans devoted a liberal share of his attention to the radio compass problem. He felt that the apparatus was still on trial. A slight lapse might cause this instrument of untold possibilities to be lost to the Navy because of the Sheridan disaster and Rich's subsequent effort to discredit the apparatus in Mortimer's eyes. Going frequently aboard the destroyers, he looked over the apparatus and talked with both the operators and the officers. With the former, he discussed all details of operation. With the latter, the prospect of using it effectively in the search for subs. In talking to both groups, he made sure that they understood what was necessary for all hands to know. The problem of submarine destruction was even more difficult than in the war with Germany, for then the German U-boats to reach their hunting ground must pass through British waters so narrow as to render the mine barrage feasible and to facilitate a considerable concentration of anti-submarine craft. Now, the submarines emerging from Gibraltar and Lisbon, both powerfully defended, could far more easily lose themselves in the broad Atlantic. From time to time, when they attacked convoys, the submarines were sunk or damaged by the escorting destroyers. But the numbers dealt with in this way were not nearly enough to give the needed protection to shipping. The chasers now and then picked up suspicious noises with their listening gear, but seldom were able to follow them to a successful issue. Hunting squadrons of destroyers, three in each squadron, were going out and sweeping the seas, but encounters with the enemy were so rare as to be almost negligible. As of old, the search was long and tedious. Whole days of seeking in vain for a trace of the enemy were telling on the men. They were growing stale and losing their enthusiasm, and so the efficiency of their vigils waned. Encouragement was sorely needed, something to rouse them with an intimation of the great role that was theirs should the opportunity come, and they use it right. Especially some signal success was needed to awaken them to renewed efforts. Both officers and men felt that they were groping in the dark for the unseen foe. Occasionally, they heard him send radio signals, but usually the board operators failed to get bearings before the signals had ceased. No one had ever seen a submarine successfully tracked down by radio compass and by hydrophone, and therefore the prospect of this feat was not real to them. The radio compasses on the shore stations, with their long range of operation, were now beginning to get cross bearings on enemy submarines from time to time, and were making an encouraging beginning in tracing their movements about the sea. But as yet little had been done to direct the destroyer squadrons by this method to the fruitful hunting grounds. It was time for a concerted effort to bring about a successful hunt which would serve to demonstrate what could be done with the materials already at hand. Evans found technical duties to perform at communication headquarters on shore, as well as in the main radio room of the mothership to which he was attached, and these duties gave him the opportunity to follow closely the reports that were coming in from the radio compass stations on the various islands. In this way, he knew as much as anyone in the force about the movements of enemy submarines. 
He watched the increasing efficiency with which their movements were revealed, and at the same time he gradually acquired a familiarity with the habits of the undersea pirates and the general plan upon which they operated. He studied the personnel on the various hunting groups of destroyers and talked with their skippers whenever the opportunity offered. He was looking for the most promising group with which to give a demonstration that would wake up the men. If a squadron could once pick up the scent by radio compass triangulation and then get the sub within hydrophone range, there would be a good chance of ending her career. And even if they only gave her a hard run for her life, a report of this would do a deal of good for the rest of the flotilla. Therefore, he searched diligently among the young skippers as they came and went on their arduous patrols. With each, he found business to discuss and thereby sized him up. At last, he found the man he wanted, one of the senior skippers in the flotilla, a man named Fraser, with the rank of commander. He was a tall, well-built, fair-haired man, clear-eyed and alert, with a magnetic personality, wholesome and vigorous, with a boyish enthusiasm and a genuine frankness about him, he at once inspired in Evans a strong liking and, more than that, a confidence that he was a real man. He saw at once that Fraser was in earnest and open-mindedly seeking any and every means that human ingenuity could devise to get the enemy. Fraser took Evans for what he was, regardless of rank, and eagerly discussed with him the problem of utilizing all the gear on his ship to the best advantage. Evans did not take long to discern that, besides the charm which had attracted him, Fraser had a mind of unusual quality, clear and strong, well-trained in his profession, but untrammeled by the fetters of tradition, a mind that could grasp quickly, think straight, and see with the vision that comes only with imagination, a quality without which no man can be a truly great naval or military leader. Evans found plenty of lines of approach to Fraser through questions of the fitness of the radio gear for the various tasks required in the teamwork of the hunting squadron. Through such channels, he led the conversation into a discussion of all the possibilities that might arise in the pursuit and attack of a submarine, a discussion which was mutually profitable. They naturally spoke the same language. Far fewer words sufficed to convey ideas to each other than was the case with most of the skippers. Each caught the other's meaning with a minimum of explanation, and each knew that the other had caught his. Chatting together in the radio room, they picked up the trail of an imaginary submarine by radio compass and maneuvered to get her within range of the hydrophones and magnetic detectors. I wish you'd go out with us on patrol, said Fraser, and see to it that all this gear is being handled right. You could help us by seeing that the boys understand their duties and are making the most of these things. There's nothing I'd like better, said Evans. I'll get Larrabee to let you come. It won't be hard to arrange. This was what Evans wanted. He proceeded to interest Fraser in the work that the radio compass shore stations were doing in reporting the movements of enemy submarines. Fraser had not appreciated the extent to which this had become possible. I'll tell you what we'll do, said the commander. We'll choose a time when they've got a hot scent of some subs coming within striking distance, and then we'll go to it. 
Soon thereafter, Evans and Fraser met more than once at communication headquarters and looked over the radio compass reports together. Before long, Fraser was making the same generalizations concerning the habits of the enemy at which Evans had arrived. And, as in the ensuing days they watched the reports, Evans visited the three destroyers in Fraser's squadron and made sure that the men and material were up to standard in every detail, from the radio sets to the hydrophones and the internal communications on each ship. He drilled the radio compass operators in taking bearings on dummy signals, drilling them so hard with ever shorter and shorter messages that soon they could give him a fairly good bearing even on the briefest signals. Before many days of waiting had passed, reports came in from the radio compasses at the Grand Canary, Madeira, and the station at the eastern end of St. Michael's showing that two submarines were proceeding on a northwesterly course from Lisbon toward the steamer lanes of the North Atlantic. First, one had been detected communicating with her base, and then the two communicating with each other and increasing the power of their signals as their divergent courses required it. The flag office, which had somewhat reluctantly acceded to Commander Fraser's request that he be allowed to hold his squadron in port in order to await such an opportunity, now issued the orders to proceed to the indicated area in search of the enemy and granted his request that the radio gunner should go with him on his ship. Evans contrived to visit the weather stations before sailing and received assurance of two days at least without storms or fogs. He also arranged with communication headquarters that if the shore stations should report another fix on their intended quarry, the news should be transmitted to them without delay. The message was to be repeated three times, and there would be no acknowledgment, for the squadron had better keep quiet on this hunt. At dusk, he went aboard the destroyer, and as he reached the deck, he heard with a thrill the roar of the great blowers voicing the impatience of a ship to spring to the full speed of her 30,000 horsepower. His blood stirred as he recalled half-forgotten days when to the tune of the same roar the gaunt destroyer on which he lived, a mere lad then, slipped her mooring at Queenstown and stood out into the wet drizzle of the North Atlantic. From chief radio electrician to radio gunner, he thought, not much change in status for 20 years. It was just after dark when the three destroyers slipped their moorings and headed by Commander Fraser's ship took the opening in the net at 16 knots. Completely darkened, they headed south till well out of sight of land, then turned east and rounded the end of St. Michael's far enough away to be invisible from shore. It was not forgotten in the Navy that news had spread mysteriously from Queenstown to Berlin with lightning speed in an earlier generation, and there were those on shore who were not overly friendly at heart with the Americans. The last reported fix of the two submarines had shown them to be proceeding approximately northwest by west at 11 knots, having left Lisbon on the morning of the previous day. As the destroyers cleared St. Michael's, Frazier laid his course north by east, one-half east, or, as they say in the Navy, 17 degrees. Up to this point, they had steamed in column, but now they formed a scouting line, Frazier's ship in the center, each wingboat six miles away, bearing a beam from the flagship. 
The accuracy with which these ships could place themselves by dead reckoning using engine revolutions for distance and careful steering for direction was such that they could shift from column to line abreast and hold their relative positions for a considerable time, dark as it was, without any direct means of checking them. But this would not suffice for the task in hand. Now they must be prepared for accurate triangulation upon their victim by radio compass with their scouting line as a base. They must at all times be sure of their relative distances and bearings from each other, for on this would depend their locating of the submarine by radio bearings. Attached to the staffs at the bow and stern of each ship were two strange lanterns. No visible light came from them, but each emitted horizontally a powerful beam of infrared rays, invisible to the eye, but capable of detection with a delicate instrument. By means of this instrument, observers on the bridge of each destroyer could tell just where the other destroyers were, could register both direction and distance, invisible though they were to the eye, even with the most powerful glass. Thus, the two wing ships kept themselves in their proper positions as the flagship steamed ahead through the night, and thus the flagship verified the positions which they kept. All night they steamed at eighteen knots, and though they did not expect to be in the vicinity of the submarines they sought till the following night, still all hands maintained a ceaseless vigilance. The weather was fine, and the three slender ships left scarcely any wake as they slipped quietly through the water. There is no warrant officer's mess on a destroyer. When warrant officers are present, they live in the wardroom with all the other officers, from the skipper down. Thus, there is an informal atmosphere which is far removed from the traditional etiquette of a battleship. Evans found himself in a party of genial youths which might have been taking a vacation cruise together in a small boat, as far as one could judge from the wardroom life. Fraser put them all at ease, encouraging in every way the informal spirit of good fellowship, yet never for a moment losing their respect nor failing to inspire them with the sense of his leadership. They were a heterogeneous mixture. The officers of this ship, eight in all, Three besides the skipper were graduates of the Naval Academy. One was a temporary ensign who had worked up from the ranks through the grades of chief petty officer and warrant officer. Three were college boys of yachting experience who had joined the Navy for the war. But months together at sea, under the magnetic personality of their commander, had welded them into the most harmonious and congenial crew of shipmates. One of the college boys, Jackson by name, was a very good singer, having been prominent in his college glee club. Besides this, he was uncommonly handy with the mandolin, a gift which was much appreciated on board the destroyer. He had brought with him his mandolin and some old college songbooks, both of which were in demand. The skipper was fond of good singing and had a very fair voice himself. So when the day's duties were done, it was their wont, as often as might be, when the supper dishes had been cleared away, to make the wardroom ring with many a rousing chorus. All of the gang would be there but the lone officer who had the deck. He, standing on the bridge, alert and watchful, directed the man at the wheel and the quartermasters as they moved swiftly about, performing the duties of the ship's nerve center. 
He held the lives of all on board in his hands, while the others made merry below. And whenever it was not Jackson's turn as officer of the deck during the 8 to 12 watch, he would break out his mandolin and harmony would reign in the cheery little wardroom. On this occasion, the day following their departure proved uneventful. Steadily, they held their course at 18 knots. The visibility was fair, and there was no difficulty in maintaining the scouting line according to plan. Fraser conferred with his executive officer and Evans at some length over the details of their intended procedure. All hands at the radio compass, the hydrophones, and magnetic detectors were coached as for a great athletic contest till each man looked forward to the coming night as the chance of his life. Early in the morning, a message had been received from Punta Delgada reporting the submarines still heading northwest by west at 11 knots. The destroyers themselves had not heard them, for their range was not equal to those of the shore stations with their marvelous amplifiers, too sensitive and too cumbersome to be successfully installed on vibrating or crowded ships. All day long no signals were heard, and none were expected till midnight, for the subs would not send signals needlessly, and when they did, they would use so little power that the hunting squadron could hardly expect to hear them more than 50 miles. At the present speed, they should be within 50 miles of the supposed position of the enemy about the middle of the night. Darkness came, and the infrared lanterns were again turned on. All was in readiness. The radio operators on watch listened like wild animals in the night. Fortunately, Jackson did not have the 8-12 to 12 watch that night, so when supper was finished, the skipper said to him, Jackson, break out your mandolin, and let's have some old-time songs. It'll do us a lot of good. Evans had slipped off to look over the radio gear once more and see that all was in perfect order. This done, he rejoined the crowd in the wardroom just in time to join in the chorus of Lucy Lee, a song which was having a great run of popularity at the time. Jackson turned over the leaves of one of his songbooks and picked out one favorite after another according to the mood of the moment. Some he sang as solos. Some were familiar airs that all joined in singing. Frazier, thoroughly enjoying himself, did his share of the singing, looking over the book and now and then suggesting a song that caught his eye. In a lull between songs, Jackson rambled on with his mandolin through a kaleidoscopic series of melodies till through some strange caprice he stumbled on a Christmas carol which most of them knew. They sang it and Fraser fell into recalling the winter evenings in his boyhood when he, with the other children of the village where he lived, had sung this and other carols with the new-fallen snow on the spruce trees reflecting the lamplight from the window with a golden glow. Evans picked up the old Princeton songbook off the wardroom table and began turning over the leaves. Suddenly his face lighted as he turned to... Stand to your glasses steady. That's the most stirring song ever written by man, he said, that was written by a British army officer facing death in the great cholera plague in India. Jackson looked at the song and started playing the air from the notes. Oh, yes, he said presently, I remember that. My older brother used to sing it when I was a little kid. 
He had a crowd of them home from college with him, and they all used to get going on that song. My God, how they raised the roof with it. I'll never forget it. Evans and Jackson sang the song together, Frazier looking over the page and joining in after the first verse. There was a fire in Evans' voice which it took this song to bring out, and everyone sat up and took notice, and before the song was done, each felt it. Frazier spoke with warmth. That is a wonderful song. Let's try it again. Maybe everyone can join in this time. They sang, and the song rang out with all the fire that's in it, the fire that makes it immortal. They had just begun the third verse, Who dreads the dust returning, who shrinks from the sable shore? When a sharp call through the voice tube from the bridge broke in, Radio Room reports a high-pitched spark on 500 meters. Almost before the others had taken it in, Evans shot out of the door, saying, The hunt's on! Running aft along the matted deck, he climbed the ladder leading to the radio compass shack and silently opening the door, seated himself beside the operator on watch, who was listening intently as he rotated the coil back and forth, his eyes glued on the dial. Evans slipped the spare headphones over his ears and plugged them into a socket, which enabled him to listen in with the operator. Not a sound could he hear. After listening a moment, he said, Did you get a bearing? Very rough, answered the operator. He only sent for about three seconds after they opened the main antenna. I reported it, though. What was it? Fifteen degrees, answered the man. Evans made a mental calculation. We're headed 17. That makes it 32. True, he said to himself. They sat a moment in silence. Then, suddenly, there came through the receivers a rapid series of dots and dashes in a peculiar high-pitched note. Both men grew tense as if struck by an electric shock. Almost instantly, a small light flashed beside the operator, showing that the main radio room had heard and recognized the unmistakable note of an enemy submarine and had opened the main antenna to enable the radio compass to function. With a rapid spin, the operator whirled the coil through a large angle, stopped it, and spun it back a little more slowly. The message stopped, but it was enough. How's that, said the operator, turning the coil partway back and stopping it. Right, as near as I can judge, said Evans. Let him have it. The operator called through the voice tube. Bridge, 13. Evans listened a minute more, then, hearing nothing, took off the headphones and saying... Do your damnedest, and we'll have this goose cooked by morning. He slipped out of the shack and ran up to the main radio room to see how things were working there. Ever since he left the wardroom, the skipper had been conversing with the wingboats by radio telephone. Both wingboats had reported their bearings. Evans satisfied himself that enough power was being used in the transmitter to reach the wingboats, but no further. Then he went up on the bridge. Commander Fraser was at the moment talking to the other destroyers. Now's our chance, he said. Keep the boys on the job, and on your life, don't miss any tricks. Fraser put up the phone, catching sight of Evans, he said. Execs plotting the fix in the chart room. Let's see how he's coming out. They went to the small chart room on the after part of the bridge and looked over the executive officer's shoulder. He was just finishing his plot of the second set of triple bearings from a line on the chart representing the 12-mile scouting line of the three ships. 
Where the lines met, they crossed in a pair of elongated triangles which overlapped in a small area. Those look like good fixes, said Fraser. Where would you put him, Evans, on the strength of them? Evans drew a pencil line around the two triangles, enclosing an area about seven miles long and two miles wide. It's safe to say he's somewhere in that area. The second fix was the best. I'd go more by that. If we put him there, we shan't be far off. And he marked with his pencil a spot near the center of the triangle made by the second set of bearings. This spot was 38 nautical miles from the present position of the flagship. Fraser said, they're undoubtedly still steaming northwest at about 11 knots, but they'll change when they hear us coming. Then he made a hurried calculation, stepped to the radio phone, and called to the other destroyers. Course, 23 degrees true. Speed of port wing boat, 36 knots. Starboard boat, 32 knots till the line is true on the new course. Then squadron speed, 36 knots. Keep six miles distant for the present. Speed up now. He put up the phone and said to the officer of the deck, Course, 23 degrees, speed, 34 knots. Word was passed to the engine room, and almost at the same moment the three destroyers swung six degrees to starboard and leapt forward like greyhounds unleashed. There was a light headwind, which at 18 knots had scarcely been noticed, but now, as they dashed headlong into the seas at double the speed, masses of fine spray rose from the bow and swept madly past, white and ghostly in the darkness, mingling again with the tumultuous white wake receding rapidly astern. But there was little thought of spray or foam on the bridge. Captain and exec, alert and tense, conversed in brief sentences, while the officer of the deck, with brisk orders, directed the business of the bridge. Quartermasters on the jump dispatched their duties, noting and reporting readings of the wingboat's distance and bearing. The helmsman, ignoring all else, kept the racing ship true on her course. Elsewhere, gun crews and depth charge crews were ready for instant action. Fraser turned to Evans. Has he heard our radio phones yet? Not with the power we're using, said Evans. He'll get us by hydrophone first. At 36 knots, we'll make a noise he can hear a good way off. Ten minutes passed. Then the man at the radio compass voice tube reported, bearing three degrees, and a moment later the wingboats each reported a bearing taken on the same signal of the enemy. In a second, the executive officer was plotting the bearings from the new baseline. Corking fix! They damn near meet in a point, he said to the skipper and Evans, who was close behind him. The blighter hasn't changed course yet, said Fraser. I don't believe he's hurt us. The new fix showed that probably the submarine was still traveling northwest at about the same speed as before, but now her distance was barely 30 miles. After this, no more radio signals were heard. Had she heard them racing toward her yet? If so, she would soon be submerged, and they must find her by hydrophone. By this time, the three ships had squared their scouting line and were tearing through the water at 36 knots. For 15 minutes, they rushed on through the darkness, holding their line in perfect order, but hearing no sound and seeing no sign. The suspense grew. The submarine could not now be more than 24 miles away. Frazier again called the other ships by radiophone and ordered them to close in till within two miles of him.
How far off could he hear us coming at this speed, he asked of Evans. If he stopped to listen, he'd hear us all of thirty miles, if he has the gear I think he has. But I trust he has no intimation of our coming and hasn't stopped to listen. Running at eleven knots, he might not hear us till we're within fifteen miles or less. When he does, he'll submerge and do his damnedest to fool us, said Fraser. He'll know we're closing in to cover him with our hydrophones, said Evans, and assuming that, his best chance to get out of range is either to hold the course he's been on nearly at right angles to ours or to double back at about right angles the other way. I wonder which he'll do. I bet he'll go back, said Evans. He's about as likely to think we'll expect him to and keep right on. They don't think much of our intelligence, said Evans. Of course, it's a gamble, but I bet he thinks we're too stupid to think of his doubling back. He'll bet on our going for the place his course has been taking him. Well, said Fraser, suppose he hears us when we're 15 miles off and then submerges and changes course. His best speed submerge is nine knots. By the time we get there, he may be anywhere within a radius of about four miles of that point. The farthest we can hope to hear with our radio phones while we're going faster than he is a mile. That means we can cover at best a strip six miles wide. We've got to leave two miles of the circle uncovered on the first shot. If we miss, we can double back. If he goes slow enough, we're apt to miss him altogether. I guess it's our wits against his with a betting element thrown in. Anyhow, I'm not betting on him tonight. Twenty-five minutes of converging courses brought the wingships within two miles of the flagship, and dimly their dark forms and white streaming wakes could be seen through the darkness on either side. Now the assumed spot where the submarine, hearing her pursuers, had probably submerged, lay seven miles, dead ahead, twelve minutes more at their racehorse speed. Fraser spoke, Evans, I'll chance it on your guess and cover the eastern half of the circle, leaving the western two miles to search later if we miss. A few brief words were flashed out by radiophone, and the next minute the squadron had changed course eight degrees to the eastward, and all three charged on at top speed. Presently, the executive officer said, Isn't it about time to slow down and give the listeners a try, Captain? They can't hear anything while we go at this speed. The trouble is, he'll hear us and slow down too, said Fraser. He'll slow down till we can't hear him unless we're right on top of him. There's little chance he'll be near enough to hear yet. I'd rather go full speed till we're almost on the line I think he's on, then stop quick and try to spot him before he has time to slow down. Tell the engine room to be ready to stop all auxiliaries when I give the word and give the listeners warning. Calling the other ships by phone, he gave them similar instructions. Nine minutes passed in silence, save for the roar of the blowers and the swish of the waves and the ghostly sheets of spray swirling past over the bridge and lifeboats. The executive officer was beginning to fidget. Commander Fraser stood with his eye on his watch. Stop the auxiliaries. Give the word to the listeners, he called quickly. Ready? Stop the engines. A signal was flashed to the other ships. The great torrents of steam pouring into the turbines of the three ships stopped almost as if the valves controlling them were geared together. As the ships lost headway, the suspense became almost unbearable. 
A minute elapsed, with no word from the listeners, but to every man on the bridge it seemed an hour. Then a voice from the hydrophone station down in the hull called, Motors heard slowing down, too faint to get bearing, slowed, and became inaudible about five seconds after engines stopped. My God, I wish the wingboats would report, said the skipper. The words were hardly spoken when the radio phone from the starboard ship reported, Motors heard slowing down as we stopped, roughly bearing 55 degrees true. Fraser fairly jumped for joy. Eagerly, he called the port ship. Have you heard anything? Nothing heard, was the answer. Starboard ship reports motors bearing 55 true. Motors heard here. No bearing, he replied. Submarine probably three to six miles east of us. Your course is 80 degrees true. Speed 35. Start now. Aye, aye, came back from the port ship. To the starboard ship, he called. Course 80 true. Speed 15. Start now. Then to the officer of the deck. Course 80 true. Speed 25. In a few seconds, the pack was dashing forward again in a maneuver calculated to bring them in nine minutes into line on their new course within a mile or two of their prey, perhaps less. Frazier reviewed the evidence. Bearing 55 from starboard end, barely heard here, not heard port. It's a good scent if it isn't a fix. We haven't got him yet, remarked Evans uneasily. He may stop altogether and balance with his tanks. Then we'll have to find him with the magnetic detectors, and that way we can barely cover a thousand yards, the three of us. It won't be any cinch. But the frightened submarine underestimated the hydrophones of her pursuers and preferred trying to steal away at the almost silent speed of three knots. In the last half of the ninth minute, as the ships were coming into perfect line, Fraser again called a general halt, and as the three ships made their sudden stop which enabled the sensitive hydrophones to penetrate the silent deep about them, clearly the listeners down in the three hulls heard at the same moment the faint hum of motors, again dying quickly away as the fact that the pursuers had stopped again to listen was reported to the submarine captain and the motors were hastily shut down. But this time each ship had heard and each had read the bearing. First, the report came up the voice tube from the flagship's own hydrophones. Relative bearing, 343. What does that make it, said Fraser. 63 true, answered Evans. That's right, said Fraser, and turning to the executive officer, plot it. In quick succession came the reports from the wing ships. 116 true from port, 25 true from starboard. Plot them lively, said the skipper. The exec lost no time, and as the third line he ruled crossed the other two almost at their point of intersection, Fraser gave a shout. A fix for fair, he cried, and, seizing the radiophone, called simultaneously to both wingships. Do you still hear the submarine? Only silence was reported from all three ships. The sub was clearly lying still to escape detection, or stealing along with her motors barely turning over. Receiving this report, he called back, submarine moving very slowly or not at all, fixed at a point bearing 63 degrees true from flagship, distance 2,500 yards, close in at 35 knots to 200 yards for attack. 
This was followed by instructions as to courses needed to execute this delicate maneuver, bringing each ship on his flank at the right moment to cover with a destructive pattern of depth charges the area where the submarine must be. Again, the three ships leapt to high speed, the wing ships converging sharply toward the flagship while she forged slightly ahead of them. He knows we've got his trail, said Evans. He'll probably strike out to one side at full speed. If he does, he can get clear of the destructive area of our pattern before we can get there to make it. Fraser, who was getting so clear a fix on the submarine so close at hand, had felt ready to attack without further reconnoitering, especially as the sub had apparently been motionless when he started his dash for the attack. Now did some quick thinking and making mental calculations half aloud. 2,500 yards, 2 minutes and a half, subtract 15 seconds for hearing us to start and giving orders, 15 more for getting up his speed, 2 minutes, 9 knots, 600 yards. That's right, he'll be just about clear of us if he uses full speed. He looked at his watch, then gave orders preparatory to another halt, then looked at his watch again. After a minute and a half on converging lines, he called a halt. Once more, the listeners heard the submarine motors stopping more quickly than before, but now they were near enough to get a fix in spite of the abruptness with which the sound ceased. The fix showed the submarine now only a thousand yards from both the flagship and the port wingboat. Fraser well knew that as long as the destroyer lay still, they could detect the submarine at this range if she tried to move at a speed of more than one knot. Therefore, he took his time planning how to place his depth charge pattern, for, though the stern of each ship was well stocked with these destructive cans, the total area which they could cover with the certainty of a kill was, after all, not large. The maneuver planned to a nicety, he gave the order for the final charge. We can cover him this time, he said. Jumping to thirty knots, the port wing boat and the flagship rushed in on sharply converging courses till the men on the bridge of each ship watched with their hearts in their mouths the black hulk of the other looming up as if nothing could avert collision. But when they were less than 500 yards apart, Fraser calmly said, Right rudder, and flashed a signal to the other ship at which both destroyers swerved upon parallel courses just before they reached the spot designated by the last fix. At that moment, Fraser gave the signal to begin the barrage of depth charges. From rack and Y-gun, the great cans splashed into the water, three every six seconds from each ship, and then shock after shock seemed to jar the whole ocean. Astern, through the flying sheets of spray from the bow, could be dimly seen a solid wall of white fountains towering high against the sky. Meanwhile, the starboard ship, left behind by the submarines dodging to port, raced after the other two with all the speed she had. Overtaking them, she laid her pattern down, piecing it on to those already begun by the other two so that not a square yard of the designated area should escape the force of the high explosive. For half a minute, the two ships let loose this frightful din, twenty charges from each ship. Then, as the starboard ship finished her pattern, it ended as suddenly as it had begun, and at a single word from Fraser, all three stopped short to listen. Had they got her? It was at this point that the magnetic detector showed what it could do. 
this device was able to show the presence of a mass of steel the size of a submarine if it came within 150 yards. One man on each ship had been assigned to keep his eye on this and nothing else. As soon as the din had ceased, reports came to the flagship's bridge that toward the end of the area bombed, a small deflection had been seen on the flagship's detector and one twice as large on that of the port ship. She couldn't have been beyond the port boat, could she? asked Fraser. No, we shouldn't have got any deflection at all in that case, answered Evans. Can you trust it not to make deflections out of nothing or due to the depth charges? No gear is absolutely infallible, but I think you can trust this, especially as the starboard boat got no deflection and the sub hardly could have got far beyond the port wing boat in the time she had. That's reasonable, said Fraser. Anyhow, we'd better wait here and listen a bit. Fifteen minutes passed, and not a sound was heard. Was the submarine sunk? Was she so crippled that she could not move, or was she playing possum? playing dead in hopes they'd leave her. Submarines have survived a barrage as dense as this one, damaged, but still able to lurk beneath the sea. At length, Fraser said, I think we'd better explore. The three ships turned cautiously round and headed back for the spot indicated by the magnetic detectors, steaming at only six knots so that no sound should be missed. The flagship slightly in the lead. They had gone perhaps 200 yards into the bombed area, when the man on the flagship's detector reported a deflection. "'Is it getting bigger?' asked the skipper. "'Yes,' came through the voice tube. "'Let us know when it's maximum,' he called back. Just then from the starboard boat came the report, "'Very slight deflection.' A few seconds later from the voice tube came, "'No further increase.' At a word from the skipper, a float with a light was dropped over the stern to mark the spot." Dropping depth charges at six knots is unhealthy for the boat that does it, as some learned to their cost in 1918. Therefore, no ash cans were dropped during this exploratory maneuver. As they passed on away from the lighted float, the deflection of the magnetic detector grew smaller and disappeared. The detectors of the three ships indicated that the sub had been almost under the flagship, but a little way to starboard. Her position was well marked by the light. Proceeding far enough to get up a safe speed for bombing, the three ships turned and formed their line with greatest care, this time closer together. Then they steamed back at a good speed over the marked spot. Just before they reached it, the signal was given, and a small but deadly pattern of depth charges began to fall. Through the skillful generalship of Commander Fraser, the circle of certain death surrounding each depth charge was made to overlap those of the adjacent charges. Two men standing at the stern of the flagship, straining their eyes back into the darkness, reported seeing black things rise into the air in the midst of the great white fountain of shattered water following one of the explosions. But this was not enough for Fraser. Imagination may play strange tricks on a night like this. As soon as the last bomb had exploded, the ships stopped short once more and listened. Not a sound was heard beneath the waves. Again, they turned and steamed slowly back to the spot where the focus of the attack had been and dropped overboard another lighted float to replace the first, which, needless to say, had been demolished by the barrage. This time, the magnetic detectors showed not the slightest deflection. 
Slowly, they steamed back and forth twice over the marked spot, listening as well as watching the magnetic detector, but not a sign or sound was recorded. Then they steamed at 15 knots on a retiring search curve, like a watch spring around the lighted float, listening intently till they had covered a circle with a radius of a mile and a half, but no trace was found, magnetic or audible, of the submarine. The inference seemed clear, for had she been slipping away from them, they would have heard her, or if too slow for that, the magnetic device would have found her somewhere in that area. Could there have been some serious lapse in the vigilance of the trained listeners and observers, or some error in their calculations, or had the submarine indeed been sent to the bottom of the sea? It was nearly two o'clock, and strained nerves were feeling the effect of their prolonged nocturnal adventure. And now a tawny moon rose over the eastern horizon, and under it a golden trail marked the crests of the waves. That may help us, said Fraser. The light on the float glimmered faintly on the water near the focus of their last barrage. Toward it the three ships steamed, swerving as they approached it, so that the supposed point at which the submarine should have sunk would lie in the wake of the moon. As the light on the float was lost among the flashing crests of the waves, the squadron swung into line abreast and laid its course straight into the shimmering path of gold on the water. There, said Evans eagerly, pointing toward the moon's wake, there's your oil slick, isn't it, Captain? Yes, yes, that's it for sure, said Fraser. We'll examine it a bit. As they approached, the smooth patch on the water, spreading across the wake of the moon, was unmistakable. At first, a slender line, it widened to a band as they came nearer till it clearly covered a large area, spreading out into the darkness on both sides of the moon's wake. Slowing down as they approached the edge of the oil slick, they prepared to skim the surface of the water for a sample of the oil that it might be identified by the chemist at headquarters. Suddenly, Fraser exclaimed, Hello, there's something else. Left rudder. The shining surface of the oil slick was broken by a small black speck. He was heading the ship straight for it. Other dark fragmentary objects were discerned. Fraser signaled to stop the engines. In another moment, he was down on deck, directing the seamen as they fished a few floating objects out of the water. Evans had followed him. When the first of these was brought aboard, Fraser seized it and carried it quickly into the light of the wardroom. It was a splintered piece of wood. Fraser examined it carefully, then reached for another, which a bosun's mate brought for him from the rail. That settles it, he said. We got her. To his professional eye, there was no doubt that this wood had come from the inside of an enemy submarine. Other fragments were brought in, which confirmed his conviction. Mute testimony to the tragedy just ended in the depths of the sea. Before long, enough fragments had been gathered to provide souvenirs of the chase to every man on board. It has been a wonderful hunt, said Evans with warmth, and the teamwork of your squadron is the best thing I ever saw. The other ships will like to hear the result. Yes, I'll tell them, said Fraser, and went off to call them by radiophone. Evans left the wardroom and hastened aft to the radio compass shack. 
The operator who took the bearings had been relieved at midnight by the other operator assigned to this duty just before the final barrage was dropped. But with things like this going on, he did not, as usual, turn in and go to sleep. He stayed beside his mate in the shack where Evans now found him still listening with the extra phones. It was not their part to question, but only eternally to listen. Through the din of the bombing and through the long hours afterwards, they had listened intently and patiently. Evans came into the shack like a gust of wind. We got the sub, he said to the tired operators, and we have your good work to thank for it, not forgetting the hydrophone listeners. You gave us good fixes, you and the boys on the other ships, and without them, we couldn't have got her. Neither could we without the hydrophone fixes later on. As for the skipper, you're lucky to be on his ship. He knows how to use your fixes when you give them to him. I reckon I didn't do much, said the second operator. There'll be another hunt, and maybe you'll get your chance then. He then outlined to them the story of the hunt and attack, showing the significance of what they had done. Then, with a final word of congratulation, he left them and went forward. Whatever else those men forgot about the war in after years, they never forgot that. The men on all the ships were tired. The depth charges were so nearly expended that had another submarine been found, they couldn't have attacked her with much hope of success. Therefore, they laid their course for Punta Delgada and in the early dawn, 26 hours later, slipped into the harbor and tied up to their moorings. Commander Fraser submitted to the force commander a report of the hunt, which was a model of instructive exposition. Copies of it were distributed among all the destroyer captains for their enlightenment and for the instruction of the officers under them. It made a great stir and was the chief topic of wardroom talk for the best part of a week. Those skippers who studied it intelligently grasped the lesson taught and then prepared their own ships to follow the lead soon began to harass the enemy's submarines. Two or three squadrons conscientiously practicing the method indicated actually had encounters in which they sank their victims. Those skippers who lacked the imagination and faith to see and do the thing right continued to grope listlessly in the dark and laid the success of the others to luck. One result of all this was that the enemy began to realize they were losing submarines at an increasing rate, and consequently they studied carefully the reports of those that came back damaged. This study led the submarine commanders to operate with greater caution, to zigzag, and especially to refrain as far as possible from using their radio. And soon the upshot of this was that, while the Allied shipping had gained materially in the restrictions placed on their ability to do damage, the enemy submarines became almost as hard to find as ever. End of chapter 6